we did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. This is She's On Call, a weekly show hosted by ENT specialist Dr. Sajana Chandrasekhar and general surgeon Dr. Marina Kurian. They'll be joined by guest experts to discuss an array of newsworthy medical and health issues. You're invited to ask the doctors anything. The physicians and their guests' views are their own and do not represent any institution. Please contact your doctor for any personal questions. Please hit share and join us live on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at She's On Call. Hashtag She's On Call. Please welcome our hosts. Hello, I'm Dr. Sujana Chandrasekhar. I'm an ear, nose, and throat surgeon with practices in New York City and in Wayne, New Jersey. I'm Marina Curry, and I'm a general surgeon, and I also do minimally invasive surgery and weight loss surgery in New York City. We have a great show planned today. Lots of things to talk about. Yeah, we are going to cover the gamut today, Marina. We have wonderful guests. We have Dr. Carrie Yurga, who is a trauma surgeon in California and helps uh, run tactical pre-hospital care. And we have Dr. Michelle Al, who is an anesthesiologist and state senator from Georgia. And we're going to talk to both of these the physicians not only about their um, professions, but about what it's like to be a physician advocate and how to do that effectively. Yeah, so definitely uh, stay tuned because we're going to have so much to talk to them about from how the ep uh, epidemic or the pandemic affected women more than uh, disproportionately. And then also, you know, we'll probably touch on opioid crisis and um, maybe even vaccine hesitancy. We'll see if we get to all of that. We have a full- And, gun, and gun violence. We're gonna, we're gonna probably, yeah, we're gonna get to that. And then also hear their journeys because as I said to them in the pre-chat, I was like, I'm kind of feeling a little bit underachiever here <laughs> compared to what they're up to. Um, but let us know where you're watching from. And if this is something that you think your friends might be interested, definitely like and share because uh, this is live on Facebook right now and on YouTube and on three, three events and LinkedIn. And of course there will be replays, but, and we will take your questions as they come up. Yes. So let's start by just giving you guys a quick update on what's going on um, in the medical world. So 47% of Americans have been vaccinated for against COVID have received at least one vaccine about 30% have actually received a full complement of vaccines, which is either two of the Pfizer and the Moderna or one of the Johnson & Johnson. And you're considered fully vaccinated about two weeks after your final shot. Um, but several, I, something about 8% um, are not showing up for their second shot, which is a real problem. Uh, you are not fully vaccinated without that second shot. So Marina, um, we have the people who are not coming back and 
it seems to be there's some there's some discrepancy, right? Like some of them yeah. are saying that you know they had their first shot at one place and then they had their second shot elsewhere. But there is probably and the number that came up in between was that it's about a true, as you said, eight percent that are not getting their second shot because perhaps they had side effects from the first. And there's also some like when we talk to our patients, we have someone who um, had COVID, then got the first shot and was like really had a more significant reaction than other people, there were some doctors and their own physicians would be like, you know, maybe don't take the second shot yet. But what it does show you that is between scheduling and trying to get the patients um, to to come in. And if they miss their appointment, when are they going to get their next appointment? And But all of those were previous issues. Now, I think that, you know, I walk by in the city and I'm sure it's happening all over the country. Uh, you just walk by and they're like, walk in, we have the vaccine. So you could just do a walk-in appointment. So that's going to help. And also the pause on the J&J has been lifted. And I think that's also going to be great because it's a one dose vaccine. And um, again, the instance of severe blood clot, that was a very specific type of blood clot was uh, less than one in a million. And so that is actually a rare side effect, but you know, because every, every side effect or every, uh, you know, adverse effect is, is studied so stringently, it was important to really do that pause and take a deep dive on, on what was happening. Yeah, um, I think one of the things we want to talk about is what we can do when we're vaccinated, because it's really amazing. Uh, the CDC came up with really um, kind of complicated guidelines, and then one of the people on Twitter uh, made it a little bit less complicated. But if you are vaccinated, you have um, you can do low and medium risk activities without wearing a mask, and you can wear a mask just to kind of in solidarity with the society. And then, sort of high risk, sort of indoor activities with a lot of people, um, you probably are safe without a mask. It was probably safe, for example, at the presidential address to the joint session of Congress, if everybody there was vaccinated, to not have to wear a mask. Um, but you, again, you can wear a mask to show solidarity. If you have not been vaccinated, you really can't hardly do much of anything safely without wearing a mask. And I think um, as we try to move forward as, you know, the airlines are not selling their, are not holding their middle seats anymore, like people are filling airplanes, the, the more of us are, who are vaccinated, the safer it will be. We are seeing in India and Latin America um, the devastation that happens with uncontrolled uh, coronavirus. Right. Um, if you if you are looking to get vaccinated, though, there is you can text your zip code to four three eight eight two nine, and then what we will get, and this is uh, vaccines.gov, and they'll send you a list of places. You do still have to call them, uh, but you'll find addresses and phone numbers so that you can actually try and get a vaccine. And as Suju was saying, certainly there is a, a ridiculous rise in numbers and India is in crisis, as is parts of Latin America. And, you know, this is a humanitarian, it's a disaster. <laughs> and there is a great need um, for help. Yeah. And, and I think many uh, people and many countries are stepping up to help. But this is a global pandemic. Just taking care of it in one country does not satisfy the requirements. We have to take care of it in our entire uh, planet. You know, there are some reasons people are not getting vaccines, Marina. Uh, 
maybe we can do a little quick myths versus facts about vaccines. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. We have a slide on this. Um, there's a, a bunch of myths that were propagated early on. And um, one of them, it's a little hard to, to read, is, but it's a, you know, the first one is don't get it because, you know, and actually I've had staff say that to me, like, it's, it just came out. I'm going to wait till December. I'm like, don't, please don't wait till December. Like, you know, even though I reviewed the data with them. Um, but, but so that's the important part. There is data. It has been thoroughly vetted. Um, the labs were working on this type of vaccine for over 20 years. So this is definitely, it's safe. Uh, Suji, you want to do another one? Yeah, so people think, oh, I already had COVID, so I, um, I'm immune. I don't need the vaccine. And the reality is that even if you've had COVID, um, and I'm glad that you've recovered from it, uh, your antibodies are really not high enough, um, probably by about two or three months after. So you really do need to get the vaccine. Now, you should be aware that if you've had COVID, you may have a little bit more reaction to the vaccine than I was if you have Did you see that? I was peering at the slide to try and see the next one, but because it's a little bit small. But there's a bunch of things. Like, and the other thing, the other big one was the infertility thing, that if you got the vaccine, you would be infer infertile. And that is not that is not accurate either. That is just a bald-faced lie. And so, um, you know, definitely think on getting the vaccine if you can, and this will this will help everybody. I mean, we do still need to get to herd immunity. Yeah, we really do. Um, we want to bring on our guests, but first I want to give a big apology to Marina. She gets my society's name wrong, and I got her society completely wrong last week. I was wondering why that was on there. <laughs> yes. Um, Marina has been elected the secretary treasurer of the American Society for Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery, which is a big deal. And she will be president of that society in a couple of years. And I was so proud of you that I completely mangled the name of the society. It's so okay. congratulations Thank again, Marie. Thank you Marina. so much. Thanks again. <laughs> and now on to our fantastic guests. Um, actually, and, and we also want to thank our corporate sponsor, which is ENT and Allergy Associates. Uh, they have, you can, you can actually call and get COVID testing there too, or if you have allergies, which by the way, allergy season is kicking up high, um, but they have over 40 locations uh, in New York City, Long Island, Westchester, New Jersey, and there's a number if you're interested in getting um, an appointment there, one eight five five enta doc enta doc I like it. Yeah, very enta doc it's very cute. Uh, we're live on Facebook, YouTube. Uh, Twitter and Shree's LinkedIn. Uh, please like and share and tag your friends because we are going to meet some amazing physician advocates today. We have Dr. Michelle Al, which is the greatest way to spell A-U for an anesthesiologist, Wait, greatest way to pronounce it. Uh, Dr. Michelle Al is an anesthesiologist and a state senator in uh, Georgia's District 48. And Dr. Carrie Yerge, who is a trauma surgeon and a leader in pre-hospital care. So welcome to both of you. Hey everyone, thanks for Hi. having us. No, we're so thrilled to have you guys. So, um, you know, I think COVID around the country is, is kind of coming down a little bit, which is great, unlike as we were talking about other countries. But, um, you know, in terms of your responsibilities during this pandemic, 
why don't we start with you, Carrie? What, how, how was it different? Was it quieter? Or did you have to, you know, did you yourself deploy to other areas to try and, and, and make, you know, make things work out in your different hospital systems? Yeah, I did. We um, initially in Riverside saw a slowdown in the trauma and general surgery volumes. And so initially the focus was on gearing up for, um, as, as also aborted intensivists, um, getting called into the COVID ICU. So that was really the first part of the preparation. And then I spent, I want to say upwards of six months um, working in the COVID ICU over in, uh, in Phoenix. So it's been, it's been a little bit different. Um, I haven't been, I'm not sure if you guys have been doing as much bariatric surgery or not um, as well during this time period, but it's been a little bit of a shift in practice with more of a focus on the critical care. Michelle? Yeah, uh, it's been a very interesting time to be an anesthesiologist and be a physician legislator, especially a new one in the state of Georgia. So basically my focus uh, since the onset of the COVID epidemic has been twofold. First one is clinical, just like we've all been doing working with our patients. Um, since uh, I'm an anesthesiologist, we did do a lot of, especially early on, manning the emergency airway team, and especially last spring when COVID numbers were peaking for the first time, uh, doing a lot of those emergency intubations in the ICU and emergency room setting. As a physician legislator, however, uh, what I've been focusing on is doing, trying to do a lot of the public health communication that I think is important for people to hear, both from, um, a, a, a medical expert, someone with a background in public health and someone who does work on the government level to help facilitate people getting access to the resources they need. So a lot of what I've been trying to do, aside from legislative work, is doing um, communication on our social media, releasing videos about uh, vaccines, how they work, trying to demystify some of, you know, like the myths that you guys were talking about. Try to make people feel more comfortable with the idea of getting vaccinated, why it's important, and just um, really breaking down the barriers to people getting access to care. Um, you know, we have people watching from all over. Miriam Berkeley says hello from Hell's Kitchen in New York City, which is not at all hellish and really a lovely place to be. Not, not anymore. <laughs> well, yeah. Mark Lee is watching from Durham, North Carolina. Um, he actually has a uh, podcast and a radio show, which really dis uh, disperses wonderful information to people. Uh, Maria Zachariah is watching from India. Um, uh, Iral Braganza is watching from the UK. Um, my parents are watching from New York City and say congratulations to you, Marina. Um, I, uh, you know, we are going to talk about medicine, but we're going to talk about health equity. So maybe let's talk about what is health equity? Because it's a term that doctors use a lot. Um, and maybe patients don't know what that means or people don't know what that means. So, um, Michelle, can you tell us what it means to have an equitable healthcare system? Well, I'm glad you asked that because a lot of the reason that I decided to run for office is because what we realize sort of really early on in our medical training, and when I say early on, I mean like within the first few years of med school, is that a lot of what we do for patients once they get to us at the hospital, at the bedside, in the OR, is really too late, right? Because by the time they get to us, it's very um, downstream to be able to fix a lot of the issues that made them sick in the first place, right? And when I talk about those issues, we get into talking about uh, what we in the public health field call the social determinants of health. 
when we think about access to healthcare, we tend to think very um, proximate to our interaction with them. So we try to think about like, you know, health insurance and like drug pricing and interventions and, you know, treatment, surgeries, these kinds of things. But really the things that dictate the health of the community overall are bigger social issues like access to quality education, access to economic opportunity, public safety, which we're going to talk about, um, you know, access to health insurance. These are the types of things that really dictate uh, larger community health issues and access to these factors and um, the things that impede our access um, are where the issues of social equity and health come in. So um, that's sort of my broad take on it. I'd love to hear what you guys think about it. Well, I think, um, Carrie, you do a lot with patient advocacy and you do sort of pre-hospital advocacy. So maybe you can explain to us what that means. Yeah, I, I think there are um, a lot of communities, to, to keep this along the lines of health equity, there are a lot of communities that have a dearth of pre-hospital resources. So for instance, what does that mean? It means that there are communities in America where an ambulance, should there be a medical emergency or a shooting or someone is actively bleeding, where an ambulance is upwards of 50 to 15 to 30 minutes away. Um, there are huge proportions of the United States specifically where we don't have access to um, pre-hospital care. And unfortunately that tends to affect specific community. So if you're talking about health equity, um, part of the goal of what we've been working with in the pre-hospital community is building up rural trauma systems um, and enhancing the education and skill set of pre-hospital providers to kind of step in and fill that gap um, to buy time until patients can come and meet us in the hospital in the trauma bay. Um, only because there just there aren't enough hospitals, there aren't enough trauma centers um, in the country um, per population, and and we're trying to minimize the impact that that has on, um, especially in, in rural uh, communities. You know, and it is so important that that people understand it's not. It's really sometimes you think, oh, it's rural America that's having all these problems, and it's absolutely not the case. It it, it can happen in, in in many areas in our country that are not considered rural, but even in suburbia, uh, and honestly. In New York City, you know, we can get an ambulance really fast, but one traffic jam, one, you know, um, just it, it, it takes so much time. Like my patient's leaving the hospital. It could be an hour to go to New Jersey or it could be an hour to go to Brooklyn, depending on the time of day that they leave. Right. So there's so many things that impact, but it's so important to have a process and a protocol for all of that. Um, this pandemic, you know, I, I think. As you pointed out, Carrie, earlier, that the trauma was decreased and even general surgery emergencies, which we all saw, which was odd. Uh, but when we did see general surgery emergencies, they were far more sick. Um, and thankfully, the trauma stuff was down. Um, it, you know, it's like a balance, right? Pand pandemic, really hot, <laughs> trauma down. <laughs> Things are coming back a little bit. But, you know, one of the issues that happened during this pandemic was that women were disproportionately affected uh, by everything that happened from, you know, uh, home homeschooling was significantly impactful more for women than men. Uh, and then even being at home and everyone being at home and trying to find a space uh, for everyone to do work. So this is a slide that talks about how much money women lost in income last year. And um, the, the crazy thing about it is that little bullet that says that's 
800 billion, that's more than the combined gross domestic product of 98 countries. And that women lost 5 million jobs in 2020. So this is, this was not a banner year at all for, for women. And, and in fact, they were um, more penalized if they had children than men were if they had children. And on concomitant to the job losses and the financial losses, we are seeing um, both uh, internal emotional stressors. So we're seeing a lot more anxiety and depression, fatigue, um, in fact, drinking, uh, women, unfortunately, have um, have been drinking much more than in response to these. 33% have uh, anxiety or depression. 27% um, are having uh, other uh, uh, psychological illnesses. In this study in Australia, there was almost a 3,000% increase in need for mental health services for women during the pandemic. But we are also seeing that they're dipping into their financial um, uh, reserves. And unfortunately, we have seen a heightened uh, number of uh, domestic partner violence problems, um, both for primarily to women, sometimes to men uh, as, the, as the victim. And we're seeing a lot more child abuse. And um, I, Carrie, maybe you can talk to us a bit about what we should look for if we are suspecting domestic partner violence when a woman comes in. Yeah, I just wanted to, to come back to when when the trauma volumes and the general surgery volumes went down, what we were seeing was kind of a shocking increase in intimate partner violence, um, child abuse, and then also substance abuse. Um, and so we ended up, unfortunately, in those cases, the trauma surgery team is, is um, often activated as well. Um, and so I think that we... Um, as trauma surgeons, we keep kind of a, our antenna raised for a couple of things. So particularly in, in children, we get called for any cases where there's suspected non-accidental trauma in children. And what you'll see is trauma to head and face, um, bruising, particularly around the eyes. Um, we've seen a lot of that recently. Um, and then any kind of patterned bruising. Um, it's very unusual for children to fall on linear objects. Um, so if you see bruises that look like a straight line, um, that often is from a cable or a wire or a belt. Um, so patterned bruising, um, really anything around the perineum or the genital area of children um, is of concern. Um, and then, you know, again, anything that's patterned. So anything that looks like a handprint or a footprint, um, that would be, it would be pretty hard to imagine how that could be an accidental um, bruise. So we, uh, like I said, unfortunately, particularly in my role um, at RUHS, saw a profound amount of child abuse. Those cases are just devastating to see. Um, I'm, I'm sure that you, each of you in your careers has experienced or has had some contact with those cases, and it's just heartbreaking to see. Yeah, it, it really is. You know, it's, and you see the flip side of it. Like my daughter did fall on a, uh, you know, she tripped in her room and she landed on the side of the trundle and then had a bone bruise and took her to the ER. And thankfully, I mean, this is not a story because I'm not complaining. I thought it was great. They were looking at me. I, and it's the hospital I worked at. The ortho resident was like, 
you mind if we talk to your daughter alone? I was like, oh, no, go ahead, talk to her alone. That's fine, you know. And I think that 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 the, that that suspicion should be there. Um, and you know, in, in her case, as she'll tell everyone, she's a little klutzy, so she she's fallen a couple of times, you know. But it is important um, that people check in and, and understand what what they're looking for, and that kids can get injured in odd ways. And I and I love all the places you said, you know, anything in the perianal area or perineum. The thing that struck me on that slide was the frenulum, and that is under your tongue and attaches to the inside of your mouth. And I was like, you know, when you, when um, Suju, Suju does a surgery, she's the ENT for, to, for tongue tied, right? You can release the frenulum. But right. So what is that injury? Like, I, so I, I think it's pulling. I think, I think it has to do with pulling the tongue, pulling the ears, the sort of like I'm going to box you kind of thing. I mean, it's very violent, and it's very hard to to think about it any time Sunday morning or otherwise. The other thing that that slide shows is a series of X-rays. So if the emergency room thinks that this may be a, a child abuse situation, they will do a series of X-rays to determine whether this is really um, something of concern. Um, I just want to say domestic violence, child abuse have gone up a lot during the pandemic because we are isolated in our homes. There's a lot of tension and stress. We talked to um, both uh, Donna Mazik and Robin Kogan, who are uh, excellent school nurses, about the fact that schools are not there to help identify these children. Workplaces are not there for women to reach out. There is a code when you're on a Zoom call, if you put your thumb in and close your fingers over it, it is a way to tell people on the Zoom call that you're in trouble. I'm not in trouble, I'm just showing you the code. So if you put your thumb in and you close your fingers, you can indicate non-verbally on a call that something bad is happening in your house and please send help. There are other things that women are using. They're calling 911 and they're ordering a pizza. Right, so they're calling 911 and the operator says, what's your emergency? I need a pepperoni pizza, this is my address. Please bring it as quickly as possible. The operator is saying, you know, does he have a gun? The woman can say, yes, I told you, extra. You know, something like that. So I think there are different ways that people are trying to communicate when they are in crisis that are very important for people to know. We could talk about this alone, but, um, uh, we do want to. We are. We we have these two experts with us, and we want to talk about a number of things. So maybe Marina, I'll have you take it away to the next subject. Well, you know, actually, I, the the partner violence was is uh, so horrible, um, and and also the child abuse. We, we were talking before about how so many things that we want to talk about, and yet um, one one thing that we have to talk about is really the gun violence in this country and how many shootings we've had, like on the daily, right? Every day we're hearing about it. Um, and and what what Michelle, you and Carrie are both doing uh, as advocates to try and discuss and 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 at least have the discussion on this because this this is something that in this country we're at such an impasse over. And um, the moment you start talking about guns and, and restricting access, everyone literally gets up in arms, literal. 
And the issue is not that you can't have a gun. The issue is that if you have a mental health disorder, um, if there's any question about your past, uh, dubious past, that, that there should be background checks on people. I think that that is an appropriate intervention. Um, I'm not, if my friends are watching, I'm not trying to take your guns away. I'm just saying that there are some people who probably shouldn't have a gun and it's important to identify them. But I'd like to hear uh, your thoughts on it. Michelle, can we, I mean, uh, yeah, Michelle, can we start with you? Yeah, thank you for bringing up this issue. I think that it's, um, it's a uniquely American public health crisis, this issue of gun violence. And we've seen it more and more. I think that we've seen um, a lot of it sort of more showily in the news in the past few weeks and months. But really, this epidemic has been going on for many decades. And even when it's not couched in the setting of uh, mass shootings, which I think tend to get the most attention because they're very um, large scale and public and um, they tend to get carried on the news, um, that gun violence has been happening all along. And even though it seemed like there was a little bit of a lull during the uh, sort of higher peak of the COVID-19 pandemic, really gun violence has gone up in the past year because of a lot of the reasons that we talked about in terms of increasing in uh, depression, suicidality, domestic violence, these types of things that don't tend to make the news, unfortunately, but are a really serious harbinger of the type of gun violence that we see in the United States. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a legislator in the state of Georgia, which is in um, the South. So obviously there's a very strong culture of, of gun rights here, and it's been very difficult to A, even have these conversations in a public forum in the state legislature and to get any legislation about gun safety moved because people, um, I think you're right, tend to frame it as uh, taking guns away from people. What I'd like to point out is that increasing gun safety and increasing the culture of safety around gun ownership does not mean taking guns away. Right. The same way that increasing uh, vehicular safety or driving safety doesn't mean no cars. Right. We have to find a way to be able to be safer in this environment and decrease uh, gun violence in all its forms. Right. Um, and we have to remember also that gun violence, just like any other public health issue, has many different ideologies. It has many different uh, risk groups and it presents in many different ways. So it's not just all mass shootings. In fact, the majority of gun violence, gun violence cases are uh, in the form of suicide. Suicide accounts for about 60% of cases of gun violence we see. And there's also- so, uh, Michelle, I just want to interrupt you for a second. At T-Mobile, we believe in putting people first by treating them right. So we've upped the benefits without upping the price. With Magenta Max, you get our best plan for 5G with unlimited premium data that can't slow down based on how much smartphone data you use. Plus, you'll pay zero cost to switch. And bring your phone. We'll pay it off up to 800 bucks. Only at T-Mobile. Capable device required for 5G. Activate up to 4K or video streams at 480p. 40 gigs high-speed tethering. Up to $800 via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Support charges waived. See details at T-Mobile.com. At T-Mobile, we believe in putting people first by treating them right. So we've upped the benefits without upping the price. With Magenta Max, you get our best plan for 5G with unlimited premium data that can't slow down based on how much smartphone data you use. Plus, you'll pay zero cost to switch. And bring your phone. We'll pay it off up to 800 bucks. Only at T-Mobile. Capable device required for 5G. Activate up to 4K or video streams at 480p. 40 gigs high-speed tethering. Up to $800 via virtual prepaid card. Allow 15 days. Support charges waived. See details at T-Mobile.com. The, this slide is just showing that even though we were all locked down, we did see this remarkable increase in mass shootings in the U.S. during the lockdown. 
And so, yes, that's a small percentage, but that's also happening. Um, and we'll talk a bit more about that. But go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. But my, my only point, and I'll wrap it up so we can talk some more, is um, just that there are many different forms of gun violence. And there's many different ways that they manifest different risk groups and different ways to treat this problem. So we really need to uh, stop talking about it like there's going to be one single solution for the problem of gun violence. There are lots of different solutions and lots of different things that we're going to need to try and layer on on top of each other to get uh, more safety in our community so that we can uh, coexist with people who are law-abiding gun owners. I think you had written an incredible op-ed at the in the Los Angeles Times a couple of weeks ago, um, talking about you know using your MPH or Master of Public Health hat, um, talking about fighting gun violence epidemic one step at a time, as you said. Um, this graphic shows a picture from a French um, uh, uh, media that's called Les Guns, and it's a family with enough assault rifles really to to armor a platoon. Um, so we do have some sort of mismatch in what people believe and do with guns. Uh, Carrie, what are you teaching in the field uh, that helps people survive uh, these these um, acts? Yeah, I, I just wanted to echo what a uniquely American problem this is. Um, and unfortunately, trauma surgeons in this country where we could be focusing on um, on other injury profiles, we unfortunately are becoming de facto subject matter experts on um, gun violence, particularly high velocity wounds, which are a different profile and a different pattern and cause more devastating injuries. Um, and, and I want to come back to this later on. This is a, a scientific problem. I think that the only way that we're going to eventually be able to make any headway um, is to study this the way that we study any other disease. Um, and so I, I wanted to, to answer your question, which I think is a good one. Unfortunately, the trauma community in the United States is involved after the fact. We don't seem to have the ability yet in this country to stop this gun violence. Um, and so what, what I've been involved in teaching is um, essentially law enforcement and fire EMS, teaching them how to keep um, our patients alive who are actively bleeding um, and at risk of losing their lives from hemorrhagic shock, from, from bleeding to death, essentially. Um, how do we keep those patients alive and safe until they can get into the hands of a trauma surgeon? Um, it, it really breaks my heart that we need to teach Stop the Bleed um, in in elementary schools to teachers. Um, but unfortunately, we've, we've demonstrated with some of the, the slides that we've shown, um, we absolutely do. Uh, this is this is a major issue now. Um, and so one of the things that I'm involved in that the American College of Surgeons uh, and the Committee on, on Trauma specifically has pushed really effectively, I think, is the Stop the Bleed campaign. Um, with the help of, of governance um, and leadership in this country, we are teaching how to use tourniquets and how to use direct pressure to stop um, patients from bleeding uh, until EMS um, or transport uh, can, can bring those patients to the hospital. So can you just describe for us the graphic that we're seeing? Like, what what is it when people, when you say stop the bleed, what should an, a normal person caught in a terrible situation know that will help this patient live and save their limb? 
Yeah. So, so the biggest risk to anybody who's actively bleeding is that that ongoing bleeding is going to cause shock and then ultimately death. And so in these situations, we don't worry about airway. We don't do um, support breathing or chest compressions. The first and most important thing is using your hands, particularly your fingertips, if you can, or, or a fist or an elbow um, to provide really hard direct pressure over top of the bleeding wound. Um, and that's what you see, I think, up at the top of that slide. Um, if you happen to have access to gauze, um, you can pack uh, junctional wounds, so wounds that are in the neck, in the armpits, or in the groin. Um, but really, the the hallmark I think of stop the bleed is is the emphasis on pre-hospital tourniquets. So having access to um, an approved or a, a committee on tactical combat casualty care recommended tourniquet. Um, is really ultimately going to be a life-saving um, measure and that gets put on high and tight so all the way up in the armpit or all the way up as high as you can go on the leg um, at least at first uh, and then tighten down uh, as absolutely as hard as you can to cut off blood flow to that extremity to stop the bleeding uh, in order to save the, the patient's life and the other important thing because you, you know we talk about life and limb right and, and the important thing is on this slide it says if you can write the time or let when when ems comes to let them know what time you did this so that you can talk about the the duration of limb ischemia which obviously is going to impact when when you take the tourniquet off or you try to control the bleed and, and hopefully salvage the leg or the arm so important um this this is something that is supported, I believe, in, in all states. I know New York is definitely doing it. The American College of Surgeons, as you said, you're working with them. Uh, so we do this in New York State. I was the former ACS chapter president for New York. We do this um, as well and, uh, and teach around, around the state. It is so important that people do understand. And it is, in a way, important, super important. Everyone should know how to do it. But as you said, it's, it's, we're treating the result, and we're not treating the inciting issue, um, which is that you know there's mass, whether mass shootings or just just shootings in general. And one of the slides we have talks about um, well, first of all, the slide that we have on on the U.S. having the most guns, and then there's just uh, another slide that we have too that talks about um, you know which states have uh, per capita uh, guns and, and the instance of injury. And, and I think, Michelle, you had brought up the point that, you know, almost two thirds of um, gun deaths are actually suicides. And you can see, you know, um, the number of deaths per year, especially on the yellow slide with the graph, you know, the higher you go and on the, on the X axis, which is a lower one, you're really looking at the percentage of gun ownership within the state. And then how that relates to deaths. And you see it's a fairly linear line. Love to hear your comments. Yeah, I, I think that when we talk about gun violence as a public health issue, we have to remember that the crux of public health approaches in general is prevention, right? Which I think is what you were getting at. And um, while it's obviously good to know how to treat mass casualties, when they happen, and we're all trained to do that. Um, I think that Stop the Bleed program is great. I've gone through it myself. Um, we really need to concentrate on legislative solutions to prevent this gun violence from happening at all in any of its forms. 
I think two very reasonable types of gun legislation that have been proposed and that we're trying to work through both in the state of Georgia and on a federal level. The first one has to do with um, universal background checks. I think everyone has heard about this and it's actually the one type of gun safety reg legislation that is nearly universally popular um, on both sides of the aisle that people understand and want um, a tightening of background checks for people who are purchasing firearms. Um, I proposed a piece of legislation in the Georgia State Legislature that would um, close the loophole on um, private gun sales and transfers, which do not have to go through background checks at this moment. And on the federal level in Congress, um, Congress, the House has passed a H.R. 8, which seeks to do much of the same thing. And now it's coming before the Senate, which hopefully uh, will do the right thing, though, um, as we mentioned, this issue is very entrenched. One second issue that I'd like to bring up is this issue of uh, waiting periods. Um, I proposed a piece of legislation that mandated a five-day waiting period um, after deciding to purchase a firearm and receiving it. And that would have to do with uh, building in a sort of cooling off period for people, especially with people who are in a mental health crisis, people who are suicidal, people who are homicidal. Having a cooling period built in so that they cannot buy a gun and use it that same day to kill themselves or hurt other people. We saw this actually right here in Atlanta, that the... Um, gunman in the Atlanta spa shootings had purchased his firearm that very morning and used it that afternoon to shoot and kill eight people. So this is the type of very common sense gun legislation that I would like to continue to work on. And this is sort of the public health approach of prevention that we need to focus on in dealing with gun violence. So one of our viewers, Ellen Austin, is saying what many of us feel every time, you know, yesterday there was a mass shooting in a casino and um, you know, people were out and about, they're vaccinated, they're trying to get back to their lives. And we see the, the horror that unfolded in Atlanta. We see yesterday, we see, we can sit and name for an hour all of the shootings we're, we know about. Um, I think hearing from legislators, especially in states where um, there are more guns and more concerns about gun ownership, uh, talking about this common sense legislation is really important. I think we can't allow this to continue. This is a, this is an unchecked public health crisis that's continuing. Um, thank you both so much for, for talking to us. Kedar Ramanathan wrote in that he learned about tourniquets and how to apply them in health class in high school. And I think one of the kids in my town did an Eagle Scout project on teaching stop the bleed in the schools. Um, and I think obviously, you know, the more we can know to help people um, as civilians, the more we can then as physicians help people. Um, we you, you have guys, another. Do you guys think that we've become so inured to, to death? Like as physicians, you know, we, you know, a death, a loss of a life, especially if it's, you know, one of your patients or if you're helping out on something, anytime you even hear about it, it's just such a devastation. You know exactly because we've seen this in our careers and and it's our compassion that speaks that we know that a loss of a life is so tragic. And yet every day we're seeing people just, you know, it seems almost willy-nilly, just taking life. Like they don't see the value of human life. And that to me is also like this big problem. And I don't know when this became like okay and, and how 
impaired we are now when we hear about another shooting like oh, so there was a shooting at the casino you just mentioned it so you know i'm like no yeah that's terrible it is horrible and yet people are out there with their with just it's a crime hello it's homicide and just going out and using their guns and just the the, the disrespect and then their own lack of respect for their own life after right they take a few people out and they're gonna they're they don't you know face the piper they don't feel the guilt they just take themselves out of the picture as well like it's just it's just horrible and it just really speaks to this complete lack of of appreciation for for life yeah you know it, when we talk to sorry i was going to say this is a uniquely american problem yes. right and i think yeah. we all have have mentioned that that we have become so inured and so calcified to this that this is just how it is this is this is how we live right and we can't even figure out why the flags aren't half mast anymore. Like I, I, you can't even recover from the news of one mass shooting or mass casualty before another one happens, right? It, it takes yeah. sometimes talking to people from outside of America to realize how abnormal this is, and we do not have to live like this. I was going to exactly say that. So many of my colleagues, so many of our colleagues from around the country, have never taken care of a gunshot wound victim ever. And I'm like, how is that possible? Like, it's a, unfortunately so common in the U.S. Yet, uh, yesterday, that shooting in the casino in Wisconsin, uh, one of our colleagues, an emergency medicine doctor, tweeted that she was actually at the casino. And um, the Twitter thread breaks your heart. She's like, I don't know what's going on. Can somebody, I'm in this casino. I'm with some older woman. I'm trying to help her. She's been vaccinated. I, ha I allowed her to take her mask off. You know, it's like this confluence of terrible things. And she got out and she found her husband who was somewhere else. But, you know, we have, um, we can't become numb. We can't not see the violence that's happening. We have another crisis, unfortunately, uh, that is also very American, which is the opioid crisis um, in the United States. And um, we are seeing that, I think, uh, concomitant with all the financial issues and the stress and the anxiety and the isolation, opioid deaths reached new heights during the pandemic. Um, you can see that fentanyl and other synthetic opioids just skyrocketed in terms of causes of death uh, during 2020 and continuing into 2021. The map shows that it's essentially a problem all across America with pockets where it's more common. Um, but uh, the, we've talked about the opioid crisis on this show before, and initially it was blamed on doctors for giving too much pain medication after surgery. Um, and we have this sort of spiraling graph that kind of highlights where it's gone. So the yellow in the middle is the too many... Um... McCafe K-Cup Pods are bringing two tempting tastes right to your coffee cup, only at Walmart. Classic French toast brings the best of breakfast to every sip with the comforting flavors of sweet maple syrup, buttery toast, and a dash of cinnamon. Baked apple pie honors the classic cafe dessert with the taste of crisp apple, buttery pie crust, and sweet cinnamon flavors. Brew them up with the new Keurig K-Express Essentials Brewer. Whatever flavor you choose, you can't lose. So try them both. McCafe, available at Walmart. 
too many prescriptions that started in the 90s. And the second wave is the access to heroin, which was very cheap, which is in orange, which is growing, growing, growing. But now we're seeing these synthetic street drugs um, that are really taking lives. And um, Dr. Al, uh, Michelle, as an anesthesiologist, you use fentanyl all the time. So can you explain to us what's happening with the drug and then what's happening in this crisis? To, to talk about the opioid crisis, we really do have to talk about a little bit of history. And I think you alluded to it a little bit. Um, I do a talk that we can chat about some other time about the history of the opioid epidemic. And a lot of it, um, people point to this phenomenon from, I think when we were younger, or maybe in training about this focus on pain and the focus on treating pain readily and quickly in our patients. And I think this was well-intentioned. Obviously no one likes to see patients in pain, but this fell at a moment where um, the pharmaceutical company was really trying to push um, products that uh, they could profit off of and which they marketed as much more safe than, than it turned out that they were. Um, in terms of fentanyl, I think that this is a readily available, cheaply manufactured synthetic opioid, which is much more powerful than some of the others we had seen available to uh, patients and addicts on the street um, prior. And I think that that accounts for a lot of the spike in uh, fatalities that we see in the opioid epidemic because it is so much more potent. And the effects that we see on our patients who are maybe not used to that level of opioid effect uh, accounts for a lot of the overdoses that we've been seeing because patients have become addicted and need to continue to feed this addiction in order to, um, you know, to stay even killed. And then that, that's also something that they have, um, they build a tolerance to a certain amount of drug and then they keep chasing that high and end up taking more and more drugs. Carrie, can you discuss that and also talk about what options or what, what can be done to try and um, stem that tide of deaths from the opioids? Yeah, I, I think the the opioid epidemic has been interesting in the sense of kind of the, the physiology and what we've learned about um, there are certain parts of taking in opiates that your body gets used to and some parts that um, that your body doesn't get used to. And unfortunately, um, the, the sensation of high, um, because of the way that the drugs work, you just have to chase it and chase it and chase it with increasing and increasing and increasing doses of um, whatever it is that you're taking. Um, and the, the problem that we're seeing and, and the way that we, I think, can address some of that, um, especially on the inpatient side, um, as, a, as a surgeon, we deal, especially a trauma surgeon, we deal with patients who are in pain pretty much every day. Um, and I think we have learned how to emphasize non-opiate and multimodal. So you're using, for instance, uh, anti-inflammatories plus a nerve, a nerve pain type medication um, to try and decrease the dosing of opiates that we're using. Um, and that's, you know, kind of a very narrowly focused way to address a small piece of this problem. Um, and then on the larger, uh, from, from the larger perspective, um, I think that we've done a reasonable, reasonable job at making the antidote um, more readily available. So um, Narcan is really standard issue now for a lot of law enforcement agencies, um, interestingly enough, because they tend to be the first responders uh, to these events. Um, to, to an opiate overdose. Um, EMS has access, but then I think as, you know, Dr. Ao, I think has a good and important role in um, making this readily available, essentially, I mean, 
over the counter. I'm almost a little bit hesitant to say that because it is a medication that needs to be administered, you know, carefully and, and under monitoring. Um, but it also has the capacity to save lives and to allow people to um, make mistakes in the setting of addiction without losing their life over it. Um, and so I, I want to turn it back to you all for, for more of a discussion on Narcan, but I, I do think that that's um, a Band-Aid on a much bigger problem. You know, the, the absence of compassion and empathy, but also all of these numbing behaviors that we're seeing, especially in the pandemic, um, because there's so much pain and despair. Um, it doesn't, it shouldn't surprise any of us to see opiate use and opiate overdoses going up. And I think Narcan, while an imperfect solution, is one that we need to, um, I think, really lean into uh, for now until we can address the underlying roots of the opiate epidemic. Yeah, I think we saw, I, I think that is um, words, words of such wisdom, Carrie, because we do need compassion. We do need understanding. We need human interaction, right? It goes back to get a vaccine so we can actually see each other, please. Um, we need, you know, therapists. We, um, we had the highest rate of medical students going into psychiatry this year than we've ever seen, over 6% matched into psychiatry this year. Um, we need services that are compassionate. We need communities to be able to come back together. Um, if you suspect that somebody has an opioid, um, an opiate overdose. So they've taken a, a drug that has knocked them out. Um, they're they they're cold. They're not waking up. Uh, their their mental status is different. And you give them Narcan, um, and you're uh, you can save them, right? You can if it's an opioid overdose, you can bring them back, um, and then they can get care in the hospital. What if it's not? What if they're actually a diabetic, um, and they're and they're having those same symptoms because they're in a sort of a diabetic coma? Can I hurt somebody by giving them Narcan in the field, Doctor Al? Well, Narcan is a, a, an antagonist of opioid-based pain medication, so I don't think it's going to necessarily hurt them to give it. You know, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. I am. Um, a proponent of making Narcan more readily available. I think that actually when we write prescriptions for opioids for patients who are leaving the hospital and going home on even a short course of opioid-based pain medications, it is a good idea to maybe give family members access to having Narcan in the house. Even just knowing that being on a, even a very short course of post-op opioids, I'm talking about three to five days post-op, can increase your risk of relapse and addiction even up to a year afterwards. So this is the kind of thing that we want to prepare people for. And um, again, public health is about prevention. So obviously we don't want to have patients be in these situations, but it's also about knowing the risk factors and uh, enabling people to deal with this risk. Michelle, one of the other things when we were talking, and Carrie, you mentioned also this, the need for mental health professionals. It's there's definitely a need, but the other important part is actually getting it paid for. And, you know, some of the institutions, like all the hospital-based insurers, you know, um, were because the hospitals were saying you have to supply, you know, mental health um, programs, et cetera. And every hospital, I think, has probably generated a program or a system or method for, for providers, healthcare providers to reach out. But the, the majority of people still need it. And if you can't get it paid for, 
and you only have X amount of dollars to subsist on, then how are you going to get that mental health thing? It should be one of those universal access things. I think that will really help. Carrie? Yeah, I don't, I think probably Dr. Al and the, and the leadership in our country could speak better to how we go about shifting the funding um, so that we have reasonable access for folks. Um, it's, it is tragically problematic that the one thing that could prevent potentially some of the gun violence, but especially the suicidal component, the, the suicide um, uh, as it relates to gun violence, but we just don't have funding for the prevention component um, in the way that we need. And, and I think what we've all witnessed, especially in the, in the pandemic, has really highlighted all of the flaws in our system um, and, and all of the areas where a lack of funding before the pandemic, which was a critical issue and a crisis, has now become even more profound. Um, and so I, I am hopeful with the new administration that there will be a, um, a, a focus and an emphasis on um, how do we get to the root of, of this problem? Because really what we're seeing now, all of these, you know, these slides and the data and statistics that we've been talking about as a group today um, have an awful lot to do with the, a root problem of there being um, compassion fatigue and, a, and an empathy deficit um, and also mental illness. There's a crisis of mental illness in this country. And a lot of the behaviors that we're talking about, yeah, I'm an expert at responding to, to mass shootings, but we, we, we don't need to have them. I mean, there shouldn't need to be this degree of, of self-inflicted violence, but violence inflicted on others. Um, so, so I don't know. Um, I'm more of a kind of boot on the ground um, as, as a responder to these events. I think that probably Dr. Au and others in this country have, have been looking at the problem of how do, we, how do we shift the infrastructure to support the mental health community because they really are in desperate need of support. Um, particularly so, so what do you say Michelle what what do you what can you do as a legislator in terms of access to mental health care yeah I think mental health is always chronically underfunded and every time I look at the state budget and look at the federal budget it seems like that's the area that the funding is getting whittled away little by little what we have to remember especially with the opiate epidemic is actually mental health funding would uh, both help with prevention of uh, opioid addiction and overdose and also help with treatment, right? We have to remember that opioid addiction is a disease. It is not a value judgment that we should be applying to people that, um, you know, we, we, don't, we don't castigate people for having diabetes or having cancer either, right? These are, these are medical problems that we need to treat. And we need to realize that funding for mental health is an investment in the health of our community. I know it feels abstract. It, feels probably for a lot of people like the money is going towards nothing, especially when it's for prevention. But this is how we get to the root of the problem and it's money well spent and uh, the benefits far outweigh the costs in the end. You know, we um, have had such an amazing time talking with both of you and learning so much. Um, I, we could ask you about everything, but I'd like to know what advice you would give for physicians, nurses, healthcare providers, and non-medical people who want to get more active in advocacy. So maybe I'll start with you, Carrie. Um, I would say, you know, 
absent absent of a a large platform either a governmental position or a lot of money or a lot of power what i've tried to focus on are the little things that are within my reach within my grasp um and so I think for me, that's been on an individual level. Um, when I see something, say, um, when I see bruises on a child that don't necessarily make sense to me, but the story that was told. Um, and we all have kids and loved ones in our community that we, in the back of our head, have a suspicion that maybe there's something going on there that we're not aware of. And so I, I will defer all of the the big picture solutions to Dr. Ao. I think she's done a beautiful job and has an amazing platform. For me, it's been um, focusing on the lives that I can touch individually every day. And you don't have to be a physician to do that. I mean, learning how to stop the bleed or carrying Narcan, those are things that pretty much anybody can do. And again, not preventative, those are reactive. We're not preventing the problems, but um, as a single individual who doesn't always feel so powerful, those are the things that give me hope that I can have an impact. Michelle? Three very short things. One is we need you in here. Any physician who is interested in doing uh, public advocacy and advocacy for their patients, we need you. One easy way to get involved is through your state or national professional societies. Every uh, state national society has a legislative arm, has an advocacy arm, and they would love to have you get involved. I got involved through the GSA, the Georgia Society of Anesthesiologists, and the American Society of Anesthesiologists, and they do a great job. Second thing is that we have to remember that we have a lot of power and a lot of voice, even if we don't feel like it as individuals working in the hospital or working in our clinics. People don't always trust politicians, right? In fact, people mostly don't trust politicians, but they still trust doctors and nurses and healthcare practitioners. So use your voice well, know that people are listening to you and trust you for good advice, write op-eds, uh, speak publicly, use your social media wisely to communicate the things that you think people wanna know. And the third thing is that we do need more physicians and healthcare advocates in um, legislatures. So if you are even considering running for office, uh, even if you think I could never do that, I didn't think I could do it either, right? But it's, um, it's something where you see a need and I think that all medical people want to be ultimately of use. You wanna be useful, you wanna use your skills for good. So it's something that I think more people should consider. Absolutely, that is so great and it if, you, if you're watching and you're fired up, that's so exciting and definitely something that you can do uh, and act locally and even nationally. So thank you both of our guests, Dr. Al, Dr. Jurgi, for joining us. Uh, we want to thank our producers. We also want to thank our sponsor, which is ENT Allergy and Associates, um, for joining us. Now, next week, we are off for Mother's Day, but we'll be back on the 16th with a great show. Again, thank you to our viewers. And if you want to watch again, you can do it on um, YouTube and also on uh, on LinkedIn, I think, as well. <laughs> and will be carried on WBAI on Mondays from 2 to 3. Happy Mother's Day next week, everybody. Welcome back to the quickest podcast ever, brought to you by Kohl's. Today's topic, fall style. Wait, wasn't it just June? Right? So I went to Kohl's. Of course you did. I got a cute Kara Santana for Nine West sweater for 25% off and a great pair of Vans. Love Vans. And saved 25% on a champion hoodie for my husband. Ooh, sounds cozy. You should go. You'll get 15% off or 15, 20, or even 30% off with a Kohl's card. BRB. Select styles. Offers end September 26th. Champion coupons do not apply. Some exclusions apply. See store or for details. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row. 
proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on root metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks.